and what about the 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 look as well? Was Sharice was that something important to you to make her seem more like normal people? It was very important to me to have a Disney character that looked exactly like me. Um, <laughs> That's the first thing she said. It must be me. We're like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois Community Voices and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host today, Craig, joined by my co-host, Mr. Brett Rutherford. Well, hello there. And Ms. Vanessa Ferguson. Hello. We are so excited today. You know, we we have uh, all been viewing Encanto so many times over and over again in our homes now that it's on Disney+. Plus. Brett, you were fortunate enough to see it at both Destination D23, and then also I believe you also saw it in the theaters as well. So you saw it before any of us did. And oh, yeah. we have such a special conversation that we want to bring with you today. And that is going to be that we're talking to all three of the directors of Encanto. And uh, it's just remarkable that we get a chance to chat with these folks, especially because not only did they bring this amazing piece of uh, Colombian culture and magic to the screen for us, this art that's just uh, really amazing. And people are really soaking up every moment of this movie, but they've done so many other things in their career. And so the, the fact that they're going to give us a little bit of time to chat with them today, I am just so floored. And so I do want to introduce that they are Jared Bush, Byron Howard, and Cherise Castro-Smith. And they're the ones that wrote the screenplay. They they wrote everything about Encanto, and then they also directed it as well. It's just an incredible team that we get to chat with. Vanessa, what are your thoughts before we get to this interview? I am so excited because I very much enjoyed this film. I love it. It's beautiful. I love the characters, but the fan reaction is on another level. I mean, my mm-hmm. TikTok is blowing up with, with Bruno fan videos and oh my goodness, the, the analysis that's going into the film. I'm just so excited that maybe they'll tell us a little bit about some of the writing and, and what some of the symbolism means in the film. We'll see. I'm going to ask them, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if they're going <laughs> to tell us or not. We'll see. Brett, what are you excited to learn in this interview? Oh, well, there's so much, well, there's so much to learn and there's so much to be excited about, but I, I can't wait to ask about the music. You know, I mean, being one of the first people to to see it, I think they even said that because at Destination D23, um, we had the opportunity to see it before everyone else. So that was really exciting. So I got a kind of a little bit of a sneak peek. So I've, so these songs have been in my head for a long time. <laughs> so I'm like going, make them stop. No, don't make them stop. No, I love them all. So and that's all I have to say. I can't wait to talk to these wonderful people and find out about their process and about so many other things. And that's really interesting because due to the way that this movie was put together, primarily virtually, there weren't as many early screenings and things. So I really do think that you were among some of the first people to see this. And it's just just remarkable. So just a little bit of background before we get into this interview. Jared actually uh, co-directed Zootopia along with Byron. And of course, that was an Academy Award winner. So we're talking to Academy Award winners today. Holy moly. Um, Jared also wrote uh, a little film called Moana as well Aww. and um, Byron co-directed Tangled and then Therese Castro-Smith she uh, worked on Raya and the Last Dragon she also has a uh, a horror 
background as well, which I find really fascinating to come into Disney from that world. She's also a playwright as well. And just remarkable that we get a chance to chat with these people. And so I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to let you hear our interview with these three amazing filmmakers for Encanto. We are so grateful today to introduce to the show Jared Bush, Byron Howard, Therese Castro-Smith, the directors and co-director of Encanto. And we're so excited to talk about this lovely film with all of you. And we hope that you're all having a great day as well. Oh, man, we're super happy to be here. Hi. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Hey, Brett. Vanessa. Thank you for having us. And so it's great to have all of you on here. So what I'm going to do is sort of try to direct some questions at you individually, but please know that we would love to hear any of your thoughts on any of these questions. So if you'd like to jump in, we would love that. Oh, we uh, love to interrupt each other at all times. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, I just interrupted you. I, that's, that's what I will do to the other two. <laughs> that is absolutely perfect. And so my first question, actually, Jared, you just tweeted about this the other day, but okay. we heard that you've been hearing some fan reactions from TikTok and that there was this big meeting where you all got to kind of watch some of these videos and these reactions. And I just wanted to know, you know, you had the theatrical release in November, and then you had the Christmas Eve release on Disney Plus. What is it like uh, living through that fan reaction now to this piece you've been working on for five years? Uh, I mean, it's overwhelming in the best way imaginable. I I think that um, it's interesting, you know, I think with, with, with seeing people's TikToks, you're really getting a sense of like their own sort of personalities at home. You're, you're, you're stepping into their living rooms. Um, and some of those, I mean, to me, I find it very emotional. Some of the reactions, you literally watch people step through the, the emotions of this story that, uh, that we've been working on for five years and really spending a lot of time with these characters. And uh, for me, it's so exciting to see that these characters are resonating with people, these moments, or very clearly you're seeing the the family dynamics that we're showing in our movie are making a big impression on people. What I can only imagine are people's actually family dynamics with them that they are currently watching the movie with and showing you those videos of. So uh, it's, to me, it's it's a true joy. On the top, on top of the fact, it's super entertaining. Like the cosplays are out of control. Like that's that's a new thing for me. Uh, and uh, and just fantastic. Like I, I've said it many times that I, I could I could watch them all day, and sometimes I do. Well, and Byron, that that art direction of this film, it's so bright. It's so beautiful. It represents that Colombian culture. And so like seeing those cosplays and seeing people get dressed up, does that get you excited as well? Oh, totally. And I, I, you know, social media for us is like an extra layer that we didn't used to have with these these films. And for this one specifically, because it was released at Thanksgiving, spent a month in the theaters and then went to home streaming, that was really new for us too. I think we really got the best of both worlds because it was, you know, both holidays. And then we got to witness, like Jared was talking about this, it was like a low rumble. <laughs> it was like, oh, there's a cosplayer over there. Oh, someone learned the song or someone's making cakes that look like kind of the different themed characters. But then it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think as these this movie is on repeat, thankfully, in people's houses and people are learning the songs and enjoying it with their families, like that, just seeing it kind of become a culture of its own has been remarkable and it's it's great for us because we we spent like you said five years on these films and so uh jared and Therese and i are very familiar with the world of the film now to see people really adopting it and, and making it their own and finding parallels with their own families but and then just kind of getting 
way into it and just yeah. like it is just a, it's a big boost of energy for us because i think we're just sitting back and just like just watching this all happen so it's been it's been a terrific couple months it's so cool seeing your art and creativity in the world like that for real and uh it's just great that you're getting that response brett i know you had a, a question for Therese. Yes, there was recently an Instagram story of a two-year-old Kenzo Brandt who was thrilled to see someone who looked like him in Encanto, as his mom noted. But we've seen so many stories online about people seeing themselves on screen in, in this film. Um, last year, Disney added a fifth key to their core principles of inclusion. Why is it important to share this story at this moment, do you think? I mean, I have loved, I, I saw that story about Kenzo. There was another one that, that one of my friends just sent me about a little girl who looked just like Mirabelle and she was sitting next to the screen. I, I mean, uh, to me, one of the things that is most wonderful about this movie is that it is in so many people's houses across the world. Uh, and and the Madrigal family really represents what a lot of people know to be their own experience of family in terms of like many cultures coming together, many ethnicities coming together. But I don't think that that has ever been represented on screen in such a large commercial way before. Mm. And so just that affirmation, just that reflection of themselves being able to see, yes. And for people whose families are, you know, come from different, like uh, not those backgrounds, they are being asked to step into the shoes and, and empathize with people who look different from them. And for something to have this huge splashy impact, it's just, it's, it's humbling. It's really wonderful to see how it's just sort of, gone out into the world and, and had this huge impact. It's great. It's great. And Vanessa taking them back to the starts of their careers, I believe, right? Yes. Well, you know, sometimes when people listen to these interviews we do, they think, oh gosh, you know, how could I get to do that? So I'm wondering if maybe each of you could kind of briefly tell us how you got into doing animated movies. Um, Jared, maybe we'll start with you and then we'll go to Byron and then Therese. Yeah, I, I kidnapped Byron's cats and made him hire me on Zootopia. He still has them. Uh, so threats, I use threats mainly, uh, which is people don't understand how, how effective those can be. Um, uh, no, truthfully, I didn't know that animation was going to be a home for me. Uh, I started out in live action, uh, both in television and, and film. Um, but I just loved the movies that Disney and Pixar were making. It were these, the the imagination, the way that they really tried to they talk about four quadrant movies, but what, to me what that is, is they're movies that appeal to all different types of people and Disney and Pixar were doing the best. Um, and so my, I, I made several attempts to try to get a job at, at uh, Disney feature animation until uh, they said, okay, well, there's this guy Byron who's walking around a movie and it's going to be a crazy bunch of animals in a modern city. And I was like, I need to get in there immediately uh, this is actually before Tangled came out. And uh, and it was, to me, just so exciting to see the world, to see Byron's imagination, to see what was possible. And then it's such an incredibly collaborative environment. And for someone who started as a writer, where you're just typing on a page in black and white to come in and be spitballing ideas and have brilliant artists literally draw them in front of your face as you're as you're spitballing concepts and all of a sudden there's you mean a visual representation that's gorgeous that I would put on my wall in half a half a second. It's it's unbelievable. But I think one of the really exciting things is is um 
you know, just the, the level of imagination coupled with so many people working together to create something uh, that people haven't seen before. Yeah. And Byron, uh, who did you threaten to get into the animal <laughs> business? I threatened my cat. I said, like, if you don't do what I tell you, Jared's going to kidnap you in the first minute. No, I, mean, I think the great part about um, our, our the building and uh, like everybody who works with us, that if you ask them what their backstory is, you're going to get a different story every time. Like everybody's path is so different. In animation, some people were architects, some people came from production side, some people came from writing, some people came from uh, animation. From, I'll give you the brief version of how I got into this crazy business. So when I was a kid, I drew a lot, but I never thought that would be a career because I didn't know you could actually live off of being an artist. And so I was like, okay, that's off the table. But I, like, I was interested in physics. In high school, I had a really great uh, film teacher in high school who really loved films. And like he, there was no way to get copies of the films back then. So he had actually created terrible VHS kind of copies of these films to show us like, you know, the outsiders and citizen Kane and the shining and talked about cinematography. And so he really got me into film and then I wanted to be an editor. So I went to school for two years at uh, the Evergreen state college it was sort of this hippie school in uh, Washington state. It's like tree hugger, wonderful kind of uh, not, a, not an art school. And about two years in, I had made a, a live action short film and I got so stressed out that I needed a vacation. <laughs> so me and uh, my future husband, Shepard, we all went to Florida on vacation uh, during the summer to, to kind of like relax. And while I was there, I, they were building the Disney MGM Studios, which uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios, which eventually was the home of Disney's Florida branch of Disney Animation. So I saw that that was happening down there. And I went back to, to, uh, to Washington State where I was going to school thinking, well, this animation thing is very interesting. I also saw Who Framed Roger Rabbit? that same summer. And that kind of was like an, an epiphany. It was like, oh, I did the, all of this clever, cool film noir stuff was mixed with animation that I'd loved since I was a kid, like Warner Brothers and Disney all kind of merged into one. And then the next year, Little Mermaid came out and that hooked me. That got me like 100%, like I had to be a part of this. So I did everything I could to become a part of Disney animation. However, when I moved to Florida thinking I would get right into their animation program, they said no for years for like two solid years and they were like i said please and they, and they said no over and over again like four times until finally the fifth time uh the folks who were running the internship took pity on me and because i had no money at the time they allowed me to kind of sit in on animation drawing sessions and they were like oh here's this kid who really wants to be and i worked as an animation tour guide for a while back in the days of aladdin and uh beauty and the beast so i was in the sort of the polyester suit kind of bringing people in in the parks into that animation experience and then finally this is the short version <laughs> when i finally got in uh then I, I was actually able to get onto the films and work on pocahontas as an in-betweener and uh, mulan and uh, brother bear and lilo and stitch and then eventually fell into this the directing gig which with uh bolt and tangled and and then i started to meet amazing people like uh jared who was like a long lost brother like we like just loved each other from that and that that's been great for uh, like a decade of my life, best 10 years of my life. And then Sharice joined us on Encanto. So I feel like we just, I keep getting these great friends from these projects. And I think that you become very close on these films because it's, it's just like 
going through hell, but you go through hell with people that you just love. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. That was the short version. It's like on that fourth or fifth attempt of trying to get into animation. You're like, no, really, I'm going to win an Academy Award someday. I, I promise you. That this is okay. uh, Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> but Therese, I, your, your story is so interesting because I, of course, love Disney and all things Disney. I am horrified from horror properties. And so here I'm looking at your history and you're coming from Haunting at Hill House. You're coming from these different uh, horror properties into animation and maybe you brought a little bit into that uh, with Bruno even uh, but but what's your story how do you get here to directing sure so I mean uh, I uh, I had always loved Disney animated movies when I was a kid like I you know when Byron was uh, watching Little Mermaid I was watching Little Mermaid too and uh, you know just really falling in love with the, the visuals and the world and the music of all these movies um, I actually went to grad school to be an actor I went to the Yale School of Drama and studied acting and while I was there I wrote my first play kind of on a lark and um, Paula Vogel, who was the head of the playwriting department at that time, was like, you should take yourself seriously as a writer. You can do this. And so she kind of helped me get my first few productions as a playwright. And then I, I started working in television. <laughs> I, I, I did. I worked in The Exorcist and Haunting of Hill House. And I was working on a star show called Sweet Bitter when I got a call from my agents that Disney Animation had read a very, very dark play of mine called Feathers and Teeth. And they wanted to just meet with me in general. So I like was, I rode my, I was living in Brooklyn at the time. I rode my bike home. I thought I was just going to be sort of having like a general meeting with like the development people at Disney Animation. I thought that was really cool, but it was Byron and Jared on the call. And they were, they had this idea for uh, like a, an original Latinx Disney musical about a girl who felt like she didn't fit in and about four minutes into that conversation, I was like, I have to do this. <laughs> like, I have to do this. I hope they give, they give me this job because I really, uh, it really just struck a huge chord with me. And um, so I was lucky enough that they did. And I started out as a writer on the project and then they uh, asked me to come on and co-direct as well. And uh, here we are. So I mean, just uh, because Sharice yes. is very humble, like oh, Jared and I read dozens and dozens of scripts looking for a partner, a writing partner uh, on this film. And this is a true story. Like after weeks of doing that, he and I came into the story room with one script in hand and it was Feathers and Teeth, you know, Sharice's play. So like we were, and that phone call was like, both of us were like, please, please, please say, say yes. yes. <laughs> please. <laughs> and she did. We we're very lucky. So we're very fortunate. Yeah. Well, also, by the way, you should also know that, that Sharice, because we did the entire production from home, Sharice actually scratched voice pretty much every character in the movie. So we have That's versions true. of this movie with eight Sharices, uh, which wow. is pretty impressive. And she was also Mina Bell's hair model. All of those things are facts. All true. Oh, wow. I love That's that. All true. Yes. That's also perfect. And, you know, you say you're fortunate as an audience. We are fortunate that this like Avengers level team had come together and brought us this <laughs> film. So, so thank you for that. But, you know, the process, we know we've heard that it has taken you five years to bring this to production because animation does take longer than live action to uh, edit and go back and then look at things and then come back and, and bring those to us. Uh, we also heard at the beginning of this process that you were able to take a trip to Columbia mm -hmm. and you've mentioned that in some interviews. Can you talk about how how that trip inspired you and motivated you to bring this ultimately to the audience. And well, sure. I'll say that this question always comes up and it always, the same thing always happens. 
which is that Byron and I both looked to Sharice and part of our heart breaks a little bit because <laughs> he did not go on that trip, but was supposed to go on the next one. And that next one was March of 2020. And so I think it was like five days before they had plane then. tickets, itinerary, ready to go and squash. So Byron and I were lucky enough um, three years ago uh, to take this trip. And at the time, um, we actually were still debating whether or not the movie would take place in Colombia or something close to it or surrounding areas. And and ultimately, um, I think that the huge thing that happened was a really good friends, Juan Rindon and Natalie Ozma, who were filmmakers who had worked on a documentary about Zootopia. Um, they're Colombian. And they kept on saying, for everything you guys are talking about, you know, our movie is really about perspectives and all these different types of people. Colombia really is this amazing crossroads. We We would love to take you guys there. And so we spent two weeks in Colombia um, and uh, completely fell in love. But I think the thing that really struck us were, you know, we spent a lot of time with families. It's, it's a place that has got, you know, the music, the dance, the history, the architecture uh, of all of Latin America kind of in one place. It's this crazy, amazing crossroads. And then we made lifelong friends that, thank God, you know, for the next three years, they were the ones that really helped us build this movie, May, you know, uh, that really was inspired by Colombia. But had we not taken that trip, we wouldn't have had those amazing connections that were so very vital, given that we couldn't go back because of COVID. So mm-hmm. uh, it turned out to just be this this amazing time. And I think I think for for myself especially, you know, it's really like these tiny small things that you remember, not you know these big tourist locations that you go to. By the way, which were all fantastic. But it was listening to music in a tiny town, and that music ultimately inspires. Uh, you know, Mirabelle's Waiting on a Miracle song. Uh, it's literally based off of this one night that we had there, hearing that music of this tiny little town and, and Lin-Manuel and his father were on that trip with us. So it's one of those things where it's hard to kind of put into words, you know, um, the, this, you know, the deep effect a trip like that has. It is really sort of, you know, we heard magic runs in the streets and you felt it when you were there. And we really tried as best we could to, to translate that into our story. And that's something that was really special about this trip is having Lynn and uh, Lynn and his dad with with us. That's, that never happens. And so just like Jared said, I think it allowed us to have something real that we could always reach back to and say, what did that feel like? What did it feel like sitting after sunset in this little town in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the mountains of Colombia, listening to T-plays, which are like these little uh, 12 string Colombian guitars, which don't sound anything like anything you've ever heard before. They're so beautiful. But having Lynn with us experiencing Palenque and experiencing Cartagena and Bogota and all these other places that we were visiting and soaking it in. So he had, rather than being a, a songwriter that was coming in late in the process and catching up saying, this is what's important to us. And the songwriter having to kind of get on the same page, he was already there with us. So he was making his own impressions and s- storing them up like a huge <laughs> musical battery. So he could kind of, you know, output these um, obviously amazingly catchy songs and all very distinct. And uh, as Jared was saying, like Colombian music is so diverse and uh, it's a tapestry of a combination of many different styles of music. And it's also got a lot of traditional stuff in there, but it's very complicated to tackle. So Lynn and Michael Lozando and Jermaine Franco and our whole music team did an incredible job. But that, I think that concrete real experience was, is, mm-hmm. was key to making that all work. Well, and Byron, you know, all of you have mentioned the idea of family 
and how this is really truly built on the idea of family. And if I can speculate a bit on those fan reactions and those TikToks, maybe the reason why this film is touching so many lives is because it is so built on family at a time when honestly family means more now than it ever has in many mm-hmm. of our lives. And so I, I just kind of wanted uh, to ask before we kind of move on. And I know this is a question that you could spend an awful lot of time on again, but, but what role did your family play in bringing this picture about and, and what uh, in your motivation to going into animation and, and things like that? Oh, I think, we should, well, we should all chime in on this because it was, it's a really critical Absolutely. part of this whole project. Like I literally, our research on this film started with talking to our own families and thinking about where we come from, like we're here in this moment, but then being able to look back over the last century and think about where our families have come from. And frankly, what we, what we don't know about each other, uh, you know, um, I have a large extended side of my family. I think all of us, all of us do, Sharice, Jared, Lynn, we all have like large groups of people who have been around us as we've growing up but I think the critical thing was what Jared mentioned earlier this this movie was about perspective and how little you know truly about who these people are and what they choose to share and what sometimes it takes a little bit of effort to get to the get to the truth but that was that early on that perspective became the absolute true north of this film and that's so asking questions about your family like finding out that my mom was a fencer she actually has a sword back east in my aunt's garage i had no idea about and hearing lynn's stories and sharice's stories and jared's stories do you guys want to chime in about this just kind of like jump Jump in in there sharice yeah yeah i mean for me i was totally as you know as jared and i were writing script i was totally drawing so much from my own family into this i mean really something that informed one of the central parts of the film for me was just thinking about my own grandparents who immigrated from Cuba, like, and sort of what that was, what, what I thought, what I imagined that must've been like when I was a child and then sort of getting to be their age and trying to imagine what it was like and sort of having a different perspective on this story that was like a, the foundation of my family's life here in the States uh, and how that perspective changed when I was older and with time and able to kind of put myself in their shoes in a different way. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I was was thinking about my, my brother a lot also as I was writing this movie, who is like such a talented um, smart person. And that's so wildly different than me. Um, And just thinking about how we can misunderstand people. If we don't just stop and ask them questions. That's all the, I think, I think all of us had like this, you know, we, a lot of times we say that like these, these movies are therapy. This one was family therapy in a really big way. I think something that from the beginning that we wanted to talk about was uh, there've been many stories that say that family is good, but weirdly not a lot of stories that, that say family is complicated and here's some tools to maybe try to understand or start conversations. I'll say that to me, one of the really exciting things seeing fan reactions are people saying, I decided to have a conversation about this, or I asked my parents a question about this, or I said, I'm not going to continue this the same pattern with my kids for whatever they're going through. It's really exciting because I think that, that we all felt like we kind of knew our families and we really didn't, or we didn't really see these facets of them that, that are the reasons they make certain choices, or I would never have done it like that, but I didn't live the life that you did. And now I see you in a completely different light. That's been really, I think for us, especially like really exciting to watch, but also it was a really meaningful process because it actually really helped us also with our own families while we were making the movie. That's so wonderful. And now, Brett, I believe you have your next, our next question. 
Well, sir, you were talking about the magic that you felt when you were on your trip, and and Sharice, I'm I'm sorry that you didn't get to go on that trip. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you feel bad every time. Every time we feel don't, bad. Don't they owe you a trip anyway? <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> you know you what? I'll go to you again just to make sure you make it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. Well, can you tell? You were talking about this magic, but can you tell us a little about magical realism and the world of Encanto? You know, obviously, magical realism means a multitude of different things to a multitude of different people. Lots of different cultures have some concept of this. Um, but I think that for us, what we ended up using as a guiding light in this movie was magical realism. In a story of magical realism, the magic is born out of relationship, out of emotion, out of character, out of drive and need versus it being some sort of external force that is sort of acting upon the characters, acting upon the story. You know, I think the best example of this is Abuela Alma's moment where she is just heartbroken and in grief and shock. And she just exudes this love of protectiveness of her family that creates the entire Encanto. And uh, I'll let you guys jump in and say more about it. But I think we tried to just use that idea of magic coming from character sort of throughout the film. Yeah, that's, I think that's right on. And I think, you know, going back to that trip um, that Jared was talking about, you know, we, we had been told that magic runs in the streets, like that's a Marquez, that's a Gabriel Garcia Marquez saying, and it really is very, very true. And one, one of the things we talked about with uh, when we first talked about this movie being about family and being set in Latin America is that European magic felt very foreign uh, as, as a way, you know, it just didn't feel like it would be at home. So I think there is, there was something about magical realism as a, a literary style. Also the fact that Colombia itself with Marquez is like one of the cradles of that art form and that's that style. And it's so strong and his writing so influenced um us in the way we wanted to bring a sense of poetry and romance and but also that poetry and romance has to be rooted in sometimes gritty unpleasant reality and just that 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 toughness um was something that that Charisse and Jared brought to that that sc the screenplay which we were really wanting to um retain because it just makes the magic mean more you know and that's what that's what families are too it's like it's not always pretty it's not always clean and wrapped up with a bow at the end like these these battles that we're all fighting in ourselves and with each other sometimes just aren't easy to figure out. Sometimes the toughest thing to figure out, but I think that's what made the magic more significant to us. And that's why it took us years to talk about it and to figure out like what this was and to Sharice's point, like where it came from and like what it means and understanding gifts or no gifts and families. I think it was, it was great. It's, I, the, 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 I, I, I love that, that type of storytelling. It just, there's something compelling and so much more um, connective about it. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if we can for just a few minutes talk about the character of Mirabel because um, I know you can't tell by looking at me right now. I don't have my glasses on. I've got blonde hair. This is not natural, guys. Okay, this is just <laughs> but I I grew up. I have big glasses, brown curly hair. Sharice, I'm so excited to hear that the the hair was modeled off you because this is kind of more what I look like without a straightening iron. So um, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on creating a character that. That, uh, young ones can really look up to because if, if I had a Mirabelle growing up I would have been so delighted because none of those <laughs> other Disney princesses are giving me hair that is 
<laughs> ever. I, I can't do aerial hair. So what, was that important to you when you were designing this character of, of thinking about those young kids looking up going, oh, that looks like me. Well, here's, here's what I'd say. I, I mean, I think from the beginning, we knew that we wanted her to be a character that felt very real and very human and didn't have it together. You know, like part, part of her thing is like, you know, she has a she has a really good heart, but like doesn't always make great choices. Um, I mean, she starts the movie off by basically lying to us, which I don't think we've ever done in a Disney movie. Her whole opening song is to avoid actually telling us how she feels. And then she kind of avoids that and continues to avoid that. Um, so I think that, that from the beginning, of course, many, many conversations about who she was. I think um, we wanted to make her feel as relatable as possible. I think a, a lot of the people that worked on the film, myself included, um, you know, I definitely have like self-worth issues and that's something that Mina Bell is facing, you know, first and foremost in this amazing family of superheroes. Um, how, what does that look like in your, in your regular life? And we wanted, we wanted her to feel like that, like meaning she couldn't be spectacular and also feel like that because that would feel like, well, what's your problem? You can, there's all these other amazing things. And we wanted her to just feel like she could be any of us and that's great. Um, and I'd say that the, another huge part of that is Stephanie's read of Mina Bell, like the amount of humanity that she brought into that character and how um, uh, she's quirky and weird and flawed and odd. She clearly has spent way too much time just with herself uh, and talking to her house. And there's something about that that felt like, okay, when, when I shut the door and I'm by myself and I'm weird and I'm making faces, in the mirror to amuse myself and no one else, which is bizarre. Mirabelle hundred percent does that. And so trying to find some of those things that we do when no one's looking, it felt like we're going to do that with Mirabelle and put that on screen. Yeah. And what about the, the, the look as well was Sharice, was that something important to you to make her seem more like normal people? It's very important to me to have a Disney character that looks exactly like me. Um, <laughs> That's the first thing she said. It must be me. We're like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I, I, look, so like, actually, the, the, her glasses have an interesting backstory. Her glasses were, I think, always intended to be a part of this character because even from the beginning, when, when Jared and Byron uh, were starting to think about this movie, before I even came on, perspective and seeing things differently was a major component of this character and who she was and what she could do and so her glasses were always a part of it even her name Mirabel in Spanish means has the word look in it um and <laughs> I don't know the curly hair man <laughs> it's just well, you know what she's talking about, Sharice, is is mm. I'll say that her the design of her outfit was really oh yes talk okay a lot that's, about that's diaries so, yeah that's true. yeah so her costume actually came out of this idea that we talked about of like so in some ways we're kind of in Mirabelle's perspective throughout this movie right like she is our she's the protagonist we're seeing everything through her eyes and in some ways being 15 years old is almost like everything is magical realism, right? Because like, you know, you fall in love and it's the most amazing thing that has ever happened to any human and you get dumped and it is literally, no one has experienced more pain. So um, that kind of like emotional spectrum, we wanted to kind of internalize within Mirabelle 
from the beginning. And then her costume was an idea that we had where we were like, you know, like when you're a teenager and you're like doodling on your backpack or whatever, like this person's my friend, you know, that Mirabelle has actually just sort of spilled her feelings and thoughts onto her entire costume. It's like a visual diary of her likes and emotions and feelings. And she's just kind of put it all out there. Uh, So (laughs) I definitely have um, some boots at my dad's house still that I (laughs) took some creative liberties with when I was a teenager. No, I love that so much. And I, and I have one more question because I, I really have never seen a Disney film have so much discussion online and fan theories and Mirabelle, she's a bit of a mystery uh, in that um, she doesn't have a gift, but people are debating, does she have a gift? Does she not have a gift? Does she get the gift at the end with the doorknob? I personally think it would take away from her being the matriarch of the family if she had the gift, but can can someone put this to rest for all <laughs> I the think, fan I think theories? the answer the answer to this is no. I I, I say we refuse to put it to rest because I got to say oh, I no. love it. No, <laughs> I thought no, you were no. saying definitively no. No, 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 no. I'll say I will. I don't think we should put it to rest at all because I think the whole point of the movie is you read into it. Your perspective tells you what those answers are, and so if we said here's what the answer is, then I'd think that a bunch of people would lose their individual ways of seeing it. So I I, I love that people. I love that people read in different endings into what's happened, but Byron Trees, what do you guys think? I think that's a good answer. <laughs> Can I tell you, I, people have come to me saying, you, you're the Disney person. What happens in that movie? And I'm like, I'll have to ask them. I, I'm not 100% sure. And you've not helped me, but that's okay. See, what we could have okay. done, you, you, you're, um, you're all three of you in the Zoom, you're a kind of Jared in the middle for me, and then Byron on the left and Therese on the right. You could have done, Jared said, there's no answer. And then Byron could have went one way and Therese went the other way. And then oh, we could have had you sweet. all confused. Oh, good. Right? That would have been uh, sweet. You have the perfect answer. Oh, we need to keep the internet on its toes. That's right. Mm. That's right. Well, you know, I really enjoyed the way color played into this story. And for example, and now I actually do have in my script, insert dad joke about not talking about Bruno here. Um, but Bruno it. is uh, green and often seen as a villain color. We have uh, more of the warm and the, the cool tones that come with the Colombian culture. Um, can you talk about the color palette for this movie? And uh, I think Byron, I'll go to you first. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I mean, we really have to take our hats off to our production design team. Uh, Ian Gooding, our production designer and our associate production designer, Lorelai Bove. Lorelai specifically, you can see this in the art of book available now that you can see she made these uh, color charts uh, to help us keep the families straight. Like who's related to who, because it's very tough because we had a dozen characters and that's a tough ask for an audience to keep people, keep people straight. So even though everyone looks very different, there's often a question of who's related to who and how these downlines from Abuela and, uh, and Pedro, like how that, how that all kind of populated into the family. And so you can actually see from those charts, like there's a warm side of it, like Peppa and Felix's side of the family is dressed in warmer colors, which is actually fitting for a Costeño, like a Felix, um, you know, having a Costeño vibe has these sort of warmer, brighter kind of sunshiny colors. And then uh, Mirabel's side of the family with Augustine and Julieta are dressed in kind of cool greens and blues. And then Bruno kind of lives somewhere in the middle, like you were saying, Craig, it's sort of like this ambiguous kind of like green. Some people have even thought, is it Disney green? The green that oh, <laughs> Disney yeah. paints the, yeah. 
props that you don't want to be seen out into into yeah. the forest. That that which is gr- super clever. It's like if that's what it is, that's that was that would have been a super clever thing to think up. I don't know. I don't. That wasn't what I was thinking. But that is like I think that's really cool. But I think there is something about using color and everything at your disposal to tell the story, which is what I think our teams do so well. Is that they get as excited about the story as we do, and so every specialist, every um, uh, just amazing pinch hitter that we have in these departments who are so talented use everything they have 150 percent to lean into the story they come up with great ideas and um and then take uh, the amazing culture of colombia which we all learned so much about over the last five years and incorporate traditional fabrics and learning from our colombian uh cultural trust who kind of guide us down the right road and you know kind of help us um find the right way to express what the story needs. It, that was a remarkable journey. And then even like we're the embroidery that, we're, that Charisse was talking about earlier, that embroidery. So one of our artists actually had to re- embroider that in the computer. It's, it's literally handmade in a computer. It, was, it took months for those artists to do that. And just the, the, the amount of detail is ridiculous it's remarkable i think just to the point where this last year when uh, jared and sharice and i were watching dailies and seeing the finished the finished film up on screen for the first time like we're our jaws were dropping just the just the incredible you know confluence of everyone coming together and kind of creating these things was pretty remarkable but yeah the color is is a huge and it is like you said it's like it's like one of the most colorful films if not the most colorful disney animated film i think it's ever been produced and it's just gorgeous like every frame coco is a pixar property but mm-hmm. so many of my friends reference coco and they keep saying that this really fills up the brightness of your screen much like that film did and it mm-hmm. also is reliant on the story that you all uh, had put together as well and i know vanessa you had another uh, question about story Yes. Well, you know, you've mentioned that these films are a form of family therapy. And I, I just love that because for me watching this film, I, I kind of see how my child to parent relationship is kind of reflected uh, with my mom and, and how those roles kind of are reversing itself. And, and I see that with Abuela and uh, Mirabel. And I, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on having that kind of um, role reversal and understanding that parents and grandparents aren't always perfect and just wanted to get your thoughts on including that storyline uh jared we can go to you first oh oh, good Uh, is my family going to hear what i'm about to say or no (laughs) it's just between us (laughs) it's us okay we're keeping this i mean here's the thing you know i'd say that um so i i have three boys and i think um it's i'd say especially for parents um, when you realize how hard parenting is and how imperfect it is and how you're honestly just holding on for dear life every single day and you have no idea what you're doing. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just, you know, figuring my way out. But I think for me, when I, when I, when I had our, our first son and then the next two boys after that, I realized it is, it's really hard and you're just trying to do your best and realizing, oh man, that's what my parents were also trying to do. I love my parents. Uh, I feel like I had a really actually healthy childhood given, <laughs> given our subject matter, but I can also look and, and realize where some traits in our family have come from or why certain relationships are strained. And so um, for me personally, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, I think with, with any of these things, I think once you start to humanize someone beyond these, these roles that they have been put in, right. My mom is not just my mom. She's a person. At one point, 
she did not have children and then she got married. And what was that like? Uh, and then hearing some of those stories, you know, my dad was, uh, was in the Navy and thinking about him being away on a ship for months and months and months. And my mom having to uh, raise all of us was really difficult. Uh, it didn't really occur to me or like the way that my grandparents had to raise my dad or my, my grandparents had to raise my mother. So I think it's very easy for us to just see a role and that's all that person is, but there's so much more. And it's amazing that any of us make it through uh, because it's just really, really hard to raise a human being. It's really, really hard. And it's really hard for you to change your perspective of someone that you think you know so well. Yeah, for sure. Byron, Sharice, if, if you'd like to chime in, you don't have to, but I just wanted to. Oh, well, I'll just, uh, I thought that was a great answer. I thought I'd really just second what Jared said. I, you know, I think it's very hard uh, when you're growing up with someone like seeing your grandmother as, oh, my grandmother is not only my grandmother, she's also a mother and a sister and a daughter. And that's, that's been a complete part of her through that whole journey. And it's only, I think, as you get older, and you start, you know, uh, aging yourself or you know, like being able to talk to your family about your changing role in the family or, uh, you know, this movie is a great kind of catalyst for that kind of thing. But I think that's I think that's the thing, because per- personally, my grandmother, who I love very much, had uh, had three sisters and then she herself had three daughters. So you have like these sort of these generations of of women there and, and men, you know, on, on both sides of the family who were just different for each other and then just getting to kind of hear the the gossip <laughs> behind the scenes of like who butted heads when they were growing up and who was who who were palsy like where was where was the family click like who hung out with who and just kind of like knowing like how people gelled over the years is it's amazing it, it just gave me a deeper appreciation for uh my family as an entity but also for these individuals who are like i i liked them more even even more than i than, than when i knew more about them because i think it, it, i felt more like them but what do you, what do you think sharice is anything to add or i mean you guys kind of covered it but uh yeah i guess the only thing i'll add is like i i, I agree with you this notion of having sort of multiple identities within one person that like maybe some people are able to see and other people aren't able to see like uh, you know my daughter was six months old when i started working on this movie now she's about to be four and uh i look at her and i just (laughs) you know i i wonder who she will see in this movie and relate to who she will like think people in our family are like you know it's it's just I have a one perspective on this movie I think she is gonna have a totally other one it's been just been really interesting to watch her reaction to it you know as the parent on this uh host panel Jared I, I totally feel that answer to your uh, that you gave to us because it's almost like we get so many tests for throughout our lives on how to do things but then you're at that hospital and you're expecting i mean it's like they should give us a brene brown book on vulnerability or something just to like read through and take a test on prior to uh prior to taking that baby out of the hospital but uh certainly thank you for that answer brett i know you had a question about a recent trip that you had well yes well i i attended destination d23 at walt disney world and we had the opportunity to see encanto the week before its release and it's always exciting when you 
it's, it's always exciting when you know that there's something extra special when they ask you to put your iPhone and your Apple Watch in a plastic sealed bag. <laughs> so, you know, that was a really good thing. But that Saturday night, the panel was um, was all about the magical music of Encanto. And Jermaine Franco spoke about the mm. film score and especially about the special attention to the soundtrack themes and instrumentation to honor and include the traditions of Latin and especially Colombian music. Byron, can you tell us more about the importance of music in telling the story? Oh my gosh. I mean, I think that it's in this film's DNA to be a musical from the, like this is before Jared and I were finished with the Zootopia, before any of this happened. The one thing we knew about this was that it was going to be a musical. Like we had always, we loved working together. We really wanted to do a musical together. He and I have grown up as musicians since we were kids. Sharice as well, like we're all musicians and uh jared had had this wonderful experience or was having i should say that wonderful experience on moana with lynn so that relationship was was forming and just this uh this again people coming together to tell this story around music and talking about it in musical terms from day one was super important even this idea that it, you know it was about a complex family lots and lots of characters which lynn was very excited about he other other composers or songwriters might shy away from that because it's so complicated but he really thrived in it obviously uh, bruno is a great example of that dos rodriguez is a great uh, you know uh version of that and then when germaine joined us and germaine is remarkable in her own right i'd met germaine years ago on bolt when she was working with John Powell and we all kind of came back together uh, around this film. And Jermaine has such a, a genuine enthusiasm for learning and world culture and, and her work on Coco was extraordinary. And we loved other films she had done, other soundtracks, which really spoke to us. And so when she joined us on the team, she, uh, that's, that's another, uh, you know, I think she would have gone on that research trip with Sharice and Yvette and our art team down to Colombia. Again, another, they, they gotta go, but I mean, Jermaine uh, uh, did everything she could to kind of bring that culture of Colombia into the soundtrack, like working with artists in Colombia. Actually, what was the instrument that she ordered from Colombia? Was it pieces? The marimba, right? That was specifically used in Antonio's room. Jared has actually a, a video footage of of her playing that uh, for the Antonio's room scenes. But just, I, I think that she has such a love of what Colombian music is, both traditional and modern. And then her and Lynn and Michael Elizondo, who produced the songs with Lynn, all teamed up together to create something that's just beautiful. And I think that's that's amazing too, because the score lives in its own right. Her beautiful themes are not just Lynn's themes reinterpreted, but but they worked together to create something distinctive. So like there's that Encanto theme, this beautiful theme that she wrote, which comes in again and again, which the first time we heard it was just or just makes your heart swell. And we just asked you to get it in there more, but she was really remarkable for us. And again, this, uh, she has an enthusiasm for music that's just catching. But I, again, I've never worked in a film where music was so absolutely a part of the DNA of the storytelling. It really needed to be a musical. Well, Therese, can you talk about that collaborative process with Lynn? Because here we are, huge theater geeks as well. And of course, Lynn is a, a genius of our time, you know, in, in the likes of an Alan Menken, Howard Ashman, in the likes of a, a Richard and Robert Sherman. He's bringing all these amazing um, music, this amazing music to Disney films now. Can you talk about that collaborative process? Do you come, uh, which comes first, the, the chicken or the egg, the story or the music? Which one uh, is it that comes first in the collaborative process? Sure. I mean, I, I think 
one of the awesome things about working with Lynn was that he's just a really generous collaborator. And so it worked a little bit differently with each song, you know, but uh, I'll say like for the first song that, that he wrote for the movie, the family madrigal song, um, you know, we knew <laughs> that we had like a ton of information that needed to go into this song that the audience had to understand upfront um, and Lynn was like, hey, I can get it all in. I can do it. <laughs> I can make it work in a song. And so he wrote like the fastest Disney song ever on the planet. And <laughs> it was able to like really sort of help us with our storytelling in that moment because you really get to know the family so well. And so uh, in such a fun, vibrant way right off the bat. I mean, and then, you know, like a song like Mirabelle's song took quite some time to evolve and there was multiple drafts and it was really a process of figuring out what it was that she needed to say in that moment and sort of how she was going to express it. It was, I think it was one of the last, one of the last songs that was completed just because we kind of had to know the scope of the movie before we really finally understood exactly what that song had to be. So it was different with each one, but I mean, Lynn is amazing and I think had very strong choices uh, impulses in terms of musical choice even from the very beginning for each song moment jared i i've read that you were able to explore columbia and its culture prior to the pandemic and we've discussed that but once the pandemic hit your team only could learn via what was shared with each virtually i mean can you talk about that experience of putting together this culturally rich film in the comfort of your home <laughs> well you know actually we were we there's no one research period of our movies, which is really great and important. But this movie was 100% necessary. Meaning, it's not like we go, okay, we're going to spend six months researching and let's go make the movie. Uh, all of the partners that we made uh, that are part of that Colombian Cultural Trust were with us for the duration, and that means that you know over those five years, we we do many many iterations of our stories. We're trying to figure it out, um, and we asked for their help and we asked for new stories and their collaboration. And so uh, and we took that trip on that trip. We, you know, we met all kinds of people, whether that's historians or architects or botanists or um, families that became really great friends of ours, um, really made some important connections. And that continued throughout the rest. So the rest of the, the process. Um, and some of those people were actually based here in Los Angeles. So it wasn't always purely virtual. Um, sometimes there'd be a little bit more interaction or some of those people we had met beforehand. So there was not just a shorthand with us and uh, these various cultural experts, but also with members of our team. You know, I can talk a little bit about choreography. It's such a huge part of this movie. That's something from the beginning that we really wanted to lean into more of a, a stage field. And we were super lucky uh, to have Jamal Sims and Kai Martinez as our choreographers. Um, and, uh, they were able to have, they had a team here in Los Angeles. Kai uh, is of Colombian descent. And uh, a couple of our animators were actually able to go to the studio where they were in person doing the live choreography to shoot it from multiple different angles to talk to the choreographers there to figure out what that, that felt like. So yes, it was a combination of, of being virtual, but also at the same time, uh, sometimes having one-on-one. -on -one. And then of course, there's so many textiles uh, in this movie uh, we actually were able to get physical versions of what that might look like. So, you know, I think so much of it is like, what does it feel like? And we wanted to translate that to screen. Uh, we had the benefit of that too. So I'd say it wasn't easy, but we had the immense benefit of this, this really, really phenomenal group of people that really wanted to help us 
tell the story right. Um, and we would continue to add people as we went through the process and learn more about uh, areas that we needed uh, more education in. Well, thank you for that that clarification you know, and even behind, more behind the scenes. Thank you. We always <laughs> love that. So thanks. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to just squeeze a little bit more out of you on this fan theory. Stuff. Love it. Oh, <laughs> I love the fan theories. I'm not kidding. It shows up on my Facebook feed every like every hour. I get something new. So. Some of the fan theories out there, there's a lot of symbolism in the movie. Yeah. Some say the butterflies mean that the family is cocooned in the mountains. Um, I've seen Isabella, Maribel, Luisa, they they represent beauty, brains, and brawn. Is there any intentional symbolism that you can tell us about that you included in the movies? Or are we left to try to dig through more fan theories? I'm going to go to Byron this time because oh, 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 she can sense the weak link. She knows. Oh, she can pull funny. it out of Byron. No, I'm going to dodge it. I'm going to dodge the gift thing. I'm going to, because I, you talked about the, the butterfly imagery, which is very, very intentional. It's a very intentional motif that's throughout the film. And really, I think we were very inspired again by uh, the storytelling of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and just uh, the, the yellow butterflies are definitely a nod uh, to him and the, his, his writings and just the traditions of Colombia and just this idea of uh, a transformative experience for this family really became part of the dialogue for five years as we kind of talked about our own families so as we talked about what is the transformation that we're all going through as we learn about each other and like what is Mirabel's ultimate purpose um, in this family and so you'll see that butterfly motif like repeated in her in her dress in those in the stained glass in the house um, and that uh, visually came in very early in the storytelling uh, that we were doing with the film and then You'll t if you talk to Lynn, he'll tell you this too with Dos Origitas, which is, a, which is a critical song, maybe the most critical song in the whole movie, story-wise for us and emotionally for us, that has to do with uh, Mirabel's perspective of her grandmother and really understanding the truth behind the story. He was so uh, enamored of that butterf butterfly imagery that was throughout the film um, that he started to incorporate it into the lyrics so beautifully. And uh, that was that was a, a great... Uh, coming together of ideas and uh, inspiration for us and for him. And obviously that, that song still makes me cry when I, when I hear it. And it's so, it's so beautiful. And I think just the, the fact that even when talks about, he's so adept at lyrics anyway, but, and he writes in Spanish uh, frequently, but he said, this is the first song that he's written from beginning to end in Spanish, even pushing his own conversational Spanish to a more poetic uh, romantic um level which that's that's incredible like if lynn can actually push himself to go beyond what like he's already like a genius and to the millionth degree but just the fact that he uh really found that imagery uh so so important and all the the idea of the chrysalis and the cocoon and the the transformation and just the the imagery that winds up on the house at the end like that was all very very intentional and so that 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 is there everywhere to be found <laughs> so Thank you so much. I can, I can that's a little bit. It's, yeah, yes. that's okay. <laughs> Did you want to ask Therese too and just leave Jared out of that question? Is that <laughs> you already know you're you're gonna get a wall with me? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Sharice, if you have anything to to add, you feel free, but I, I, I can live knowing that the butterfly is intentional. 
That's I'll 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 leave let's leave it at that. Okay, yeah. perfect. Okay. The the real dark secret are the donkeys and what they symbolize, but that's the story for a different day. <laughs> oh no, just, all right. Thank oh, you sure. for a moment for dancing donkeys. I've never seen donkey I'm getting my dance moves from donkeys now. So I love it. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Brett, I think you have our second to last question. Well, I, I told you about the Destination D23 and the magical music of Encanto, but my takeaway from that evening was the undeniable passion that everyone had for this project, the pride and enthusiasm, and it was it was in the air, and it was so intense and so pal palpable. Um, can you tell us about your passion for, for storytelling and filmmaking? Uh, when you're working on a film, is passion for a project a prerequisite for you at the beginning, or does it come from your process? Everyone has a different entry point. I think for all of us, I, I think we, you kind of have to be very passionate about what you want to tell stories about. I'd say the, the, the real, uh, one of the things I love about Disney animation is that um, if you're beginning to tell a story, no one is handing you that story and saying, go make a story about X. It's really, what do you care about the most and what do you want to say? And we're very aware that we have this unbelievable um, uh, luxury of being able to tell stories that many people are going to hear. Uh, I, I, Byron's probably heard the story a thousand times, but I got to give him credit for it. When I first started Disney Animation, he said, you know, as a director of one of these movies, it's every five years, maybe you're lucky enough to be able to, to, to make one. So that's what, and with those swings, what do you want to say? And as opposed to anything else saying like, what do you want to say to an audience that's obviously enormous and worldwide, but what do you want to say to your family? What do you want to like thinking about stories that way is very different than any other approach that I've had in my career. And so I think passion 100% is where you start from. What do you really, really care about? What really, really resonates with you and why is that important for you to tell anybody else? And so I, I think we always try to start there um, because I think you have to be, it's a very long and it's a very hard journey and you have to stay on track. Um, and so I think you need to have that, that passion from the beginning. Um, it has to be something important enough that you never lose it. Right. And Therese, Byron I saw you Therese, jumping yeah. towards your uh, Zoom screen when he was talking about passions and writing and, <laughs> and all of that. Did you have a, a, a follow-up to that? I, I I totally agree with Jared. It, this process is, I wasn't even, uh, you know, I, I was on this for like three years. And even that, like, you really need to have like something in your heart that you really want to say, I think, to sort of get through it. Um, and so I think, but what I didn't understand, what I didn't know coming into this was that every single person who touches this movie, every single person we interacted with really had a level of passion for this movie that really surprised me like every single animator every single designer every single actor like it, it was just everybody cared about this movie so much in a way that I had really never seen on any other project that I'd worked on um, and I think the results of that are really clearly on the screen absolutely yeah, I would totally echo what they, what they both said yeah, beautifully. And, you know, it's, uh, so I 100% agree. You have to have that passion at the beginning. I also say that there's a remarkable phenomenon that happens to anyone on these films, but I think specifically to, to us, because since we're there from the very beginning through the very end, um, it, I, I don't know how to say this. It's sort of like if you're, I, I'm going to start this thing and I'm going to paint what I think this is. 
And that's what I do as we all do at the beginning. And then as you go through this process, you start stepping back further and further away from the canvas. And then everybody else has added what they think it is and what they're excited about. So by the end, you have this beautiful, ridiculously complicated, beautiful living thing that is somewhat of what you started talking about five years ago, but it's become so much more because of what Sharice and Jared said. It's like everyone coming in, telling you what they're passionate about, relating to it on a universal level, talking about their families, talking about Colombian culture, just talking about uh, storytelling. And just like, I, I think that cooperative um, exercise is really remarkable. It's very unique to animation, I would say too, because I'd say live action is very different from, from what I hear uh, from those on, the, on that side uh, of the street. But then um, it's, a, it's a great thing about what we do as, as directors. Like it's a, it's a great treat to be surrounded by really brilliant people who are passionate about the storytelling. And then to also see each other get excited about a new song, a, a something, a new fact that we found, a story that we hear someone share about their family. All of this stuff feeds us into creating something that's this collective painting that, and then now for us, one last thing about that is to kind of say it's done. It's out there in the world. It's doing its thing. It doesn't need us to do anything anymore. It just, it just, it's in a theater. It's in someone's homes. People are sharing it. And that's pretty remarkable to think that there's this living entity out there in the world that's going to continue way beyond us and, and be a part of culture. That's, that's a pretty remarkable thing to be um, interested with. And it'll live forever, like you were saying. So we like to end on a final question, and that is that you have done hundreds of these types of interviews, but we're wondering if there's ever a story or a moment or something, a message that you wish that you were asked about, but you are never asked about, and you can never share it. So we wanted to see if there was something that uh, was just something that you haven't had a chance to share about this. And I'll, I'll start with Therese and uh, see if you had anything you'd like to add there as our final wrap up. Holy smokes, that is such a <laughs> such a broad question. <laughs> ah, if you oh. could narrow that down for us, please. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and just toss it to Byron. Go ahead, buddy. <laughs> I love it. That was not, very good, Cherise. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'll tell you that one of the one of the things that, uh, that I don't just talk about this a lot. I don't think anyone asked me about this. So. During that trip where Jared and I and Lynn, we were all down in Colombia, that evening in Barichara, this little tiny town, it was after sunset and this trio of tiple players were playing uh, us this, this beautiful, beautiful music. And um, I had never heard anything like a tiple before. I had heard a recording of it, but seeing it in person and hearing these, these guys who were just master musicians, I just fell in love with the instrument. I played the guitar, as you can see this hanging behind me. But I had, I went to one guy in my, in my terrible broken Spanish. I was asking him about the luthier, the guy who created it. I looked at the label inside of the T-play. I took a picture on my phone. I then called up the luthier in Bogota to see if I could actually get one because they're very hard to, to get a, a quality one, like mail or it's hard to do. So the guy met me at the airport we, he said, okay, come outside the airport. I'll, here's, you give me the money. I'll give you the T play. You carry it in your back on the plane. It will fit the overhead. But it was, it was this, this sort of oh, that's cool. magical moment where it was like this. And it's, it's just this beautiful instrument that I take out and I, I play with. I, I'm terrible at it. But just the sound of it is so much about that trip and Columbia. It's this wonderful physical thing. And just the fact that uh, it reminds me of that, that moment. I just, I'll never lose that because it just it cements that memory in my mind. So some Anyway, that's one of my 
Well, I'd, I'd say, you know, there's one, there's one thing that, that people have asked about a little bit. I, Byron talked about earlier. Um, Dos Origuitas is a song that, that Lynn wrote from beginning to end in Spanish. People know that story. Uh, the other songs he was writing in English. I'd say the, the one thing that, that people uh, haven't considered, which is true, um, is that many times uh, people are like, did Lynn, I'm assuming Lynn wrote English version and then did a Spanish version, except for Dos Origuitas. What I don't, I think they, they miss is many songs he was actually writing concurrently both. So he was thinking about, as he was writing the English lyrics, what they would sound like in Spanish. So he was actually writing them at the same time in his head and didn't put them together till the process down the road. But I think a lot of people don't realize that he was already thinking about those translations very specifically as he was moving through. And um, thinking about how complex his lyrics are already breaks my brain. Thinking about that, those mental gymnastics plus a different language at the same time he just needs to calm down it's just too much at this point it's too much he needs to just relax uh, just amazing an amazing artist of our time for sure Therese did you uh had something you wanted yeah, to add? Don't, nice try. yeah don't, have to. don't dodge again Therese <laughs> <laughs> I will say okay I'll talk about like the unexpected delight of receiving an original Lin-Manuel Miranda demo uh, <laughs> oh wow uh, yeah. clicking open an email and hearing one of these songs for the first hearing we don't talk about Bruno with all Lynn, Lynn playing all the roles uh, that, oh, wow. that was a pretty special cool part of doing this I would imagine. I would imagine. Well, thank you all so much for your time. Thank you for your art and your creativity and what you're putting into the world. We all need it and uh, it helps us thrive. And so thank you for everything that you've done. It's just been a delight getting to talk to you today. Thank you. Uh, guys. It's really yes. good. And I was going to tell Vanessa what all the gifts mean and how the movie ends, but I think we're out of time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> just barely missed it. Uh, Is that what you think? Uh, Goodbye. Uh, so great. <laughs> Holy moly, that was just a wonderful discussion. And I love that they all kind of took it upon themselves to sort of pass around the questions and to give their insights into the process, because of course, they're coming at it from three different perspectives. And you had uh, Byron and Jared, who'd been working on this film for five years and having this idea. And then they bring in Therese and she brings in such a, a wealth of storytelling along with this process as well. And then of course, they're really their other collaborator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, again, we can't say enough, is just the artist of our day. It's the, he's the artist of our time, and he'll be remembered forever in that way. So amazing. I, I, I've said the word remarkable like 12 times in this interview, uh, and that's probably because I used the word prolific and uh, a little bit too much, but just incredible, the conversation we were able to have. Brett, your thoughts on the interview. Uh, may, I may second your holy moly and I raise you. <laughs> and, so and, many oh my gosh. Holies. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> did that have a whoosh factor? I think it? that had a whoosh factor, an absolute whoosh factor. So I it was just so wonderful to speak with these three amazingly talented and creative people and for them to share so much insight into both the making of this film and why there's a film and so much about that. So I enjoyed absolutely every moment of it. So I thank them tremendously. Whoosh. Whoosh. <laughs> Vanessa. I, I will add a wowza to this because I'm wowza. They are so fun. I, I feel like 
meeting the three of them and interviewing the three of them. And and as the interview went on, we kind of got a sense of how they interact with each other and how they work together. And it was really cool to just even have a little bit of that, you know, again, again, we are Lin-Manuel Miranda adjacent, you know, wow. we are two, two degree, one degree, two degrees. I don't know how that works. Yes. But, I think it's you know, one degree yes. of separation, one, right? Now we're one degree. Is it one? Okay. So it's one degree away and two, it, it, cause it's the person. And then, the oh, you're person. right. You're is right. Two? Okay. See, this is, we're not Fine. good at math here. We're, yeah. we like stories, don't ask. not math. So it's just really cool to get to learn more about him through their eyes. And, you know, I just adore this movie. I, gosh, I've read so much about it online and the symbolism and, and yes, they did not clear up the question marks I have, but I really appreciate them having fun with us and, and sharing what they did. It, It was just an absolute joy. It was almost like being dropped into some of their production meetings a little bit and seeing their different personalities come out. And you can tell that they all are so driven by story and that that is an important part of all of their processes is gathering this information so they could do right by their story that they want to tell about a family and about Columbia and about uh, just uh, this amazing magic that comes to the screen uh, as we move forward in this film. So just truly amazing. And we want to, of course, thank Walt Disney Animation for the opportunity to be able to chat with them today because uh, it was just an incredible experience as I keep repeating over and over again and will repeat again to everyone that will listen to me for at least the next week that this was just uh, an experience that I'll never forget. So we want to thank them especially. Brett, I'll go to you for any final thoughts before we wrap this up. I think this is a film that is, you know, destined to become a new classic just because of its its reach and its scope. And uh, it's about family. And especially right now, we're all, uh, you know, <laughs> we're all experiencing our family um, even more so than we have in the past. And, you know, this is a great way to uh, kind of a communal event that we can see, oh, everyone's family's a little crazy or a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And so that's something that, that we can uh, see from this film and we can sort of uh, take that with us and go, it's all good. We're all, we're all going to make it. We just have to trust each other. And uh, yeah, but we don't talk about Bruno. No, no we, we don't. don't. Don't, don't do it. I even inserted that. I inserted that dad joke and I did see Jared roll his eyes. And so it Mm -hmm. it had its intended effect. I'm sure Vanessa, (laughs) your final, your final thought tightened my heart. I think when I, when I said that you, 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 my, my eyes, like when I was like, don't, don't do that. (laughs) They've heard it before. Um, but don't make that joke, Craig. And you know, I had to, I had to, I'm that guy. I'm the dad. I'm the dad (laughs) of the group. Okay. We need to discuss uh, uh, a a, a, a consequence for that for for Craig. Punishment. I I enjoy that. Yes. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. You're all going to go to Disneyland again together. That's what you're going to do is punishment. (laughs) But we keep trying to cut you off. Vanessa, what are your final thoughts? I I will just say, even though we're not going to talk about certain titles of songs, the music is great. The story is really different i i really feel like this is a very different approach to uh disney storytelling and i so enjoyed it it's beautiful i really encourage you to go watch it if you haven't watched it yet it's a really enjoyable film and and again i just so enjoyed having them here to talk about it 
Absolutely. It's on Disney Plus. It's very accessible. It is definitely going to be in the awards conversation. We did not want to bring any of that up with the directors because, of course, uh, that is jinx potential. But I will tell you that this is a lovely story and we are better for being able to experience and to view that story. The 60th animated film from Walt Disney Animation. That's mm. important. Wow. That, that, that is, is such that's, that's, that's a such a, a milestone and yeah. one that was almost completely done virtually. You know, we've we've heard about how Soul had to change production for Pixar and go to a virtual environment. We heard Raya and the Last Dragon also had to do that. But truly, this film was done so much over Zoom. And they talk about in uh, other interviews the idea that not the the cast didn't really get together much until the premieres and they had those opportunities. So it is just remarkable how well put together this film is, how well told it is, and how prescient it is to our day and age, and uh, especially that message of family. So wonderful. Thank you again to them for their time. But if you would like to hear some other interviews that we've done or just us talking general Disney wackiness, you can follow us on Beyond the Mouse on any podcast platform of your choice. Also on social media, we're on Beyond the Mouse on Facebook, also Beyond the Mouse Podcast Pals on Facebook. That's where you can actually go and chat with us in the group. So I would definitely recommend checking out that. We're Beyond the Mouse Pod on Instagram, also Beyond Mouse on Twitter as well. And of course, you can find us uh, if you search on NPR Illinois and search under the Community Voices tab as well. I'm going to get out of here before I say remarkable again. So for Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row and I bet it's going to be remarkable you guys yeah. dancing donkeys you gotta check out those donkeys <laughs> they've got donkeys. some moves those donkeys <laughs>